0: Welcome to the Frontside Podcast, the place where we talk about user interfaces and everything that you need to know to build them right. My name is Charles Lowell, developer here at Frontside. With me also co-hosting today is Taras Mankowski. Hey Taras. Hello everyone. Today we uh, have three special guests that we're going to be talking to. We have Aaron Chambers, Luke Melia, and Matia Gaeta, who originally met collaborating on fantastic... uh, Open source library that um, we at the front side have used many many times it saved us countless hours saved our clients hundreds of thousands of dollars if not more ember CLI deploy we're going to be talking um, not about that uh, library in particular but around the operations that happen around UI so welcome y'all hey
1: thanks it's great to be here
0: yeah like I said, I actually am really excited to have y'all on because you know when we talk about the platform, that you develop your UI on something that often gets short shrift in communities outside of the Ember community is how do I actually deliver that application into users' hands? Because obviously we don't want it to be working just on our laptop. We want it to <laughs> be delivered to our users. And there are, are myriad ways uh, that that can happen. And it's only gotten more complex since the last time we talked, which must've been like three or four years ago. I mean, I kind of just have to ask, like, I you know, I think that, what y'all were talking about then was cutting edge is still cutting edge now, but there must have been some pretty incredible developments like in the last three or four years, right? What have been kind of the new insights that y'all have had?
1: You know, I think that what we realized as we got started with Ember CLI Deploy and the and the project kind of came together as a combination of a, a few different open source efforts, something that Aaron was working on, um, something that our collaborator Mike was working on. Um, we decided to come together under one umbrella, join forces. And what we realized pretty soon is that uh, deployment needs vary a ton between mm-hmm. between companies. And so you know, we are coming from this background in the Ember community where you know we have this attitude where you know, nobody is a special snowflake. We all kind of have the same needs for 90% of what we do. And that's true. I really you know, believe in a lot of that Ember ethos. Uh, but when it comes to deployment... Uh, you know what, a lot of companies are special snowflakes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, there are, or it's at least, uh, is much more fragmented than um, kind of our needs around uh, on, a, on the JavaScript side. And so what we decided to do was to try to evolve Amber CLI deploy into um, a platform, essentially an, an ecosystem um, that mm-hmm. p- could let people um, mix and match plugins needed to do in their organization um, without locking them into an opinion that, you know, was might simply be a non-starter in their work. Right.
0: It's hard enough to have opinions just around the way that your JavaScript code is structured. But when it comes to rolling out your app, it really does encompass the entire scope uh, of your application. So it has to take account of your server. It has to take account of your user base. It has to take account of all the different processes that might be running all over distributed around the internet, you know, maybe some are on AWS, maybe some are on legacy servers, but it has to consider that in its entirety, right? So it's having opinions that span that scope is particularly difficult, right?
1: Yes. And so, You mentioned a bunch of technical details which are absolutely forcing factors for a lot of orgs in how they do their deployments. But what we've found in talking to people that there's there are also people and political aspects to Mm. deployment in many cases. You know, Mm -hmm. engineers kind of own own the JavaScript code that's running within their app more or less. Um, But when it comes to pushing the app into the world in a lot of companies, um, that means they're interacting with sysadmins, ops folks, um, people who have very strong opinions about, what is an uh, allowable and you know, supportable way to get to have those deployments done and to have that stuff exist in production? And so we needed to come up with an architecture that was gonna, going to support you know all all these kind of varied use cases. And so we came up with this uh, system of essentially a deployment pipeline and plugins that can um, can work at various stages of that pipeline. Mm-hmm. And that ecosystem has now grown quite a bit. It's actually, I think, I don't know, you know Aaron, if you, uh, if you and you, Mattia, would agree, but I think it's probably the best decision that we made in this project, because that ecosystem has grown and evolved without us needing to do a ton of, of work and maintenance, and it's been really great. So I think, Mattia, you pulled some of the, our, the current numbers there.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I put some numbers just like yesterday and, uh, we have like currently 152 different par- plugins that uh, attach themselves to different parts of the pipeline. So some of them are about, uh, how to build the assets. Some of them are about, uh, how to compress them. Some of them are about uh, shipping and, uh, and, 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 uh, and they allow people to ship uh, with different ways. Like we are sync with SSH with, uh, uh, just simply uh, Amazon APIs or Azure APIs. And some of them even are about just how to visualize data about your deployment. So how to give feedback to the user about what was deployed and represent the information, right? And then uh, this is like kind of a bit more detailed, probably and specific to us, but we also added this idea of plugin packs. So in order to help people define their deployment story, we created this idea of plugin packs and plugin packs are simply group of plugins. So plugins grouped together. As a user, if you want to, implement what we call a deploy strategy you can simply install a plugin pack and that will give you all the plugins that allow you to deploy in, in a specific way right and that's kind of like an optimization that uh, that we added just to to make easier for people to share deployment strategies so so share like ways uh, of deploying applications right right it's almost
0: like an application within the framework
2: yeah, exactly. But but to stay on the second on the community side, I think that uh, the interesting part about what Luke was saying, uh, which was a great success for us, is that all we maintain as uh, the core team for this project is uh, the core infrastructure, so the pipeline and uh, a thousand of plugins. Everything else is community based, right? And often, even in my day to day at work, like I end up using plugins that I didn't write, right, and uh, and that I don't even maintain. But because the the underpinning of it. Uh, uh, where we're, we're designed especially by Luke and Aaron flexible enough it just like has been very very stable and very very reliable for for many years right so I, I will say definitely that like the idea of like in the spirit of what Ember is I guess creating a shared ecosystem where people can add what they want and, and extend what uh, what's provided has been uh, the one single biggest win of this project
0: I mean one of the things um, that I'm curious about is we've talked about how you know, you're allowing for and kind of embracing the fra- fragmentation that happens in people's, you know, kind of the, the, the topology of their infrastructure. What do you see as the common threads that really bind every single good Deployment strategy together.
2: My biggest thing here, and uh, we actually created, uh, we have some shared notes about this. But my biggest thing uh, about this is the idea that uh, building and deploying an application is, for me, is divided in three parts. There is the building part where you have to decide how to compile your JavaScript application and, and how to produce like uh, some sort of artifact. There is the shipping part that is about uh, deciding where you're going to put the artifact. And then there is the serving part, which is how you, how, how you show it and deliver it to your users, right? So I think that these three are the underpinnings of any deploy strategy. And uh, what we did with this product is just like acknowledging that and, and give each one of these a place. And so the entirety of what we do in, a, in what Luke defined as a pipeline is simply give you a way to customize how you build, customize how you ship, and then customize how you serve. So yeah, I I think that that's kind of the root and the question that everybody that wants to deploy a a modern JavaScript application have to ask themselves, right? How do I want to build it? How do I want to ship? How do I want to ship it? And now will I, will I serve it to my users, right? And these things are completely independent, one, one from the other, in the sense that like, you, can, you can have something build it, something ship it, and something serve it. And that's what we end up doing in most of our deployments, I find. It's
0: good to think about those things as soon as you possibly can and make sure that you have all three of those bases covered, really, before you start adding a whole ton of features, right? Sprint zero,
1: right? <laughs> that's what we yeah. call it. In Agile, <laughs> we call sprint zero the phase, the thing you do right in the beginning And it's, you've got a skeleton of an app, and then you get the deployment infrastructure going, you have the test infrastructure going, so that uh, there are no task uh, within your your actual feature development where you have to do those things. And I think that can be a valuable concept to embrace. I would just add, I think, to, uh, you know, to Matias' three points, that for deployments, to me, you know, some very simple qualities of good deployments are repeatability. Um, right You need to be able to reliably and consistently run your deployment process. Sounds simple, but you know there's plenty of uh, operations that have run way too long on uh, manual deployments. So we don't we don't want to see those. Uh, Rollback capabilities. Um, So if you have a deployment that you realize uh, was a mistake, uh, you know, right after it gets into production, I'm I'm sure none of us have ever experienced that. (laughs) Uh, You know, you want to have a method to roll to roll that code back. You know, that's something that can be um, remarkably complex to do right, Um, and so. Uh, you know, having uh, having some guardrails and some su- support mechanisms to do that that, like Emburse Deploy provides, can be really useful. But whatever your approach is, I think that's a, a to me a necessary quality. And then there's, and then I think we step start to step into kind of more uh, advanced capabilities that a good deployment architecture can provide when we start to think about you know things like personalization, A/B testing, feature flags, um, these kinds of things. And that requires more sophistication, but you cannot build that on a, a foundation, a deployment foundation that's um, that's not solid.
3: I think for me, one of the things that I've been really thinking about a lot lately, kind of, it's a, it's a bit of a mindset shift, I think, and it, to to get to where the things Mati was talking about, separating those different parts of deployment, and I've sort of really started to realize the traditional mindset around deployment is like I build some stuff and I ship it to the server, and then the the users get it. But if we can actually stop and actually split our understanding of deployment into two separate phases, one is the building and the the physical shipping of the files, and the other one's actually making them available to people, you open up this whole world of power features that you you wouldn't normally have. So, to be able to actually physically put stuff in production but not yet have it active, as in users don't see it yet, but you can preview those versions in production against production databases, and then at some point after the fact decide, okay, I'm now going to route all my users to this new thing and to be able to do that really easily uh, is is massively massively powerful and so like to me the thing i've been thinking about lately is it, it is a small mindset shift away from you know yeah packaging everything up and pushing it overriding what's currently there to being something again like luke said immutable immutable deployments where everything we build and ship uh sits next to all the other versions and we just decide which one uh, we want the users to, to look at at any time, which leads into then, I guess, your A-Bit testing, feature flags and things. So I guess deployment really is not so much about the physical shipping. That's one part of it. To me, deployment now is shipping of stuff, as in physical deployment and then the releasing it or enabling it or activating it to users. Mm-hmm. Or routing
0: it. It sounds like what you're describing is an extraordinarily
3: lightweight process. It is, yeah. To actually route traffic uh, to those files. It is, and it's, it's incredibly lightweight. Um, that's the amazing thing about it. When you think about it, you're building a few JavaScript files and CSS files and images and putting them on a CDN, and then you just need a tiny web server that it, that basically decides which version of the app you want to, to serve to people. Um, there's not much to it at all, really.
0: I mean, that's that's absolutely fascinating, the the capability that you have when you have the ability to have these versions, the same versions or different versions of your application sitting along next to each other and being able to route traffic. But it also seems to me like it introduces a little bit of complexity around version matching, right? Because only certain versions are going to be compatible with certain versions of your API. Do you have different versions of your API talking to the... So so the simplicity of having kind of mutable deployments, so to speak, is that everything is in sync and you don't have to worry about those version mismatches. Is that a problem, or this could just be uh, me worrying about nothing. But you know, that's that's kind of the thing that just immediately jumps out to me is like, is there are there any strategies
1: to manage that complexity? To me, what you're describing, um, I kind of think of as a feature, not a bug. Um, and but what what I mean by that is that it is very simple to have a mental model of oh, I have some JavaScript code that works with you know a version of my JavaScript code that works with this version of my API. And as long as I kind of deploy those changes together, I'm good to go. The reality is that that's impossible, right? Um, you know, Java, our, the JavaScript apps that we write today, people are um, using for anywhere from two seconds at a time to two days at a time, right? It's not uncommon these days to have some of these some of these dashboard apps. Now, people, you know, literally like live in for their job, eight hours a day, nine hours a day, keep the browser tab open and come in the next morning and and continue. And so obviously, you know, there are some mechanisms we could use to force them to reload, that kind of thing. But at, at some point in most apps, you're going to have a slightly older version of your JavaScript app talking to a slightly newer version of your API for either, you know, the span of a minute or perhaps longer, depending on, you know, those strategies. So to me, the the process of thinking about that, and at least being aware of that as, as an engineer, thinking about how your code is going to get from your laptop into the world, I think is uh, it's an important step that we not paper over that complexity and that we kind of embrace it and say, hey, this is part of life. And so we need to think about just like we need to think about how, how do database migrations get into production, right? That's not something that you can paper over and just have a process that it's going to take care of for you. It requires thought. And, and I think that this, but in the same token, um, how different versions of your JavaScript app are going to interact with your API requires thought and you know an exact parallels also have different versions of a native mobile app right that go into the app store how do those interact with different versions of your api so i think you're right there's complexity there you know and there's ways that we can try to mitigate and, and keep we're kidding simple. ourselves if we think that that complexity <laughs> doesn't exist
0: uh, even in the simple case
2: yeah i, I think that that's to reiterate what luke is saying uh, that, that, that's exactly the point is you can pretend it's not there but it is and you have no way to avoid it once you ship something to a browser you have no control over it anymore. And so you have to assume that somebody is going to be using it.
1: Aaron, I think you, you two, I don't know if you can share it, but you recently told told us some stories about kind of what you encountered in your work about this, kind of how long people were using versions and stuff.
3: Yeah, yeah. It's something we hadn't sort of put a lot of thought into, but... Um... Uh, the last place I worked at we had quite a long-lived app and uh, we had we were using feature flags and we we're using um, launch darkly or something and it gives you a list of flags and when they were last requested and there were some flags that were removed from the code uh, and it was just a matter of waiting until all the users had the most current version of the app and weren't requesting the flag anymore but this one flag just kept getting requested for months and we just could not work out why and it really sort of opened my eyes up to like this exact problem that like these long lived apps, they live in the browser. And if you have someone that just doesn't reload their browser or restart the machine or anything, your your app can live a lot longer than maybe you actually realize it is. So we're starting, we're we're shipping bug fixes, we're shipping new features and we're we're all patting ourselves on the back that we fixed this bug. But have you really? If your users haven't reloaded the app and gotten the latest version, then you haven't actually fixed the bug for, for some number of people. And it's, it's really hard to tell unless you think about this and put things in place. Really hard to tell uh, what versions are out in the wild, how many people are using this buggy version still.
0: Yeah, that's an excellent point. I haven't even, hadn't even thought about that. I mean, what is the countermeasure? We
3: hadn't either until we came across it. Sorry, <laughs> sorry for <talking> <laughs>
0: it's nothing quite like getting smacked in the face with a problem to make you aware of it.
3: <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So what's the, what's, what's the strategy to deal with that? I guess for me, my learnings from that would be um, from very early on thinking about a how we're going to encourage people to reload to start with, um, and maybe even have the ability to, to force a reload and what that means. But then that has uh, gotchas as well. You know, you don't want to just reload something when a user's in the middle of writing a big, a big essay or something like that. But definitely thinking about it from the start is one of those things you've got to to think about from the start. But I guess something I'd like to implement and I've kind of thought through but not really explored yet, but the ability to see what versions are out there in the wild and, and there are things I've been thinking about in terms of this little server that serves different versions. Maybe we can start having that kind of tracking what versions are out there and who's, who's using what and, and being able to see, because it'd be great to be able to see a live chart or a dashboard or something that sort of shows what versions are out there, which ones, you know, we need to be aware of that are still there and, and even what users are using and what version so you can maybe even. You know, move them on if we need to. But, uh, there's definitely a bunch of things there that aren't immediately obvious. And I don't know how many people actually think about this early on, but it's critical to actually think about it early on.
2: Yeah, I was going to share what we do and, uh, which is very similar to what Aaron said, just like maybe for, for listeners to have some context. The first thing that you can do is basically what Gmail does, which is every time, uh, a web app sends a request, uh, it, uh, an XHR request, it will send a version and uh, some sort of like a version of the app. With the request and the backend can check. And the backend can check if uh, you are se- you're ser- you're sending a request from the same version that is the-, the most recent deployed version, right? And and if it's not, it sends back a header. And uh, the same way that Gmail does, it, it will display you a pop that it. It's like, hey, we have a new version if you want to reload, right? And on top of that, what at least we do at work is that uh, we-, we have a dead man switch. So if we accidentally deploy a broken version, a part of this process, the the front-end application checks uh, in the headers. And if a special header is sent, it force reloads, right? Which is not uh, nice to the user, but it's better than, uh, uh, sometimes it's critical to do so, right?
0: Right. I remember there was that case where Gmail released some, uh, they were doing something with broken service workers and the app got completely and totally borked. And I remember that this, my Twitter blew up, I don't know, it was about a year ago. I think, and and one of the problems that I don't think they had, they did not have that capability,
2: right? Yeah, I mean, you learned this the hard way, right? <laughs> Sadly, but <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, I think uh, I think that these two things are are definitely crucial, and and the third one, I might misremember. I thought, Luke, you had uh, the the ability that uh, that Aaron was talking about, like tracking with versions in the wild. And I think that's more just like useful for uh, for stats, right? So that you know how often your users update, right? And then you can make design decisions based on that, right? And based on how, how much you want to support, right, in the past.
1: Yeah, we haven't implemented that, but it reminds me, you know, when, whenever there's a new iOS version, we do, you know, a bunch of mobile work uh, at Yap. And uh, we're always looking at that adoption curve, you know, that's published a few different uh, analytics services, publish it, say, okay, how fast is, you know, iOS 12 adoption? How fast are people... Leaving behind the old versions, and that that helps to inform um, how much time that you're spending doing bug fixes on old versions versus just telling people, "Hey, this is fixed in the new OS. You know, go get it." But to, to be able to see that, you know, for your own JavaScript apps, I think that would be pretty hot. Yeah,
0: I mean, crazy thought here, but it, uh, it almost makes me wonder if there's something to learn from the Erlang community um, because this is kind of a similar problem they um, you know solved twenty years ago. Where you have these very very long running processes, uh, you know some of them there's you know some telephone servers in Sweden that have been running for over a decade without the process ever coming down, uh, and yet you know they're even upgrading the version of Erlang that the VM is running, and you know they have the capability you know to even upgrade you know a function at like a recursive function as it, as it's running. Um, And there's just a lot of, you know, I don't know what the specific lessons are, but I wonder if there's if that's an area for study, because if there's any community that has locked in on hot upgrade, I feel like it's that one.
1: That's a terrific analogy. I I, I bet bet we could learn a ton. I mean, that just hearing that kind of makes me think about. How kind of coarse our mental model is about Java, about updates to our JavaScript apps, right? I mean, so we, you know, we talked in Aaron, we just were talking about kind of this idea of immutable apps and you have different versions side by side. But the idea of being able to kind of hot upgrade a version, you know, with running code in a browser, um, now that's an ambitious idea, right? Like that's something like, wow, um, that would, that kind of, Ch- is a game changer. Yeah, yeah.
3: Makes me feel like we got a whole bunch of work to do. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You're welcome. I'm. I'm always happy to give people plenty more work to do. No, but how they manage even being able to, you know, do migrations on the memory, uh, you know, uh, that's running. I don't know if it's something that's going to be achievable, but I mean, it sounds kind of like that's the direction
1: that we're heading, right? It does. I mean, I think that as these apps get more complex and they're they continue to live longer, you know, The ideal, the the, the workarounds that um, that Mattia mentioned about kind of showing a message and having a dead man switch, these are all certainly like useful and today uh, I would say even like a best practice. But they're not what you would want to do if you could magically design any system, right? Magic. If you if you're taking the magical approach, the app would just be upgraded seamlessly as the user was using it. And they they would be none the wiser. The bugs would be fixed. End of story. There's no interruption to their workflow. You know, and at least for me personally, I don't really think about that as a possibility. But I love the you know the the Erlang story and analogy and to say, well, hey, maybe that is a possibility. What would it take? Um, It would obviously take a collaboration across your JavaScript framework, perhaps even JavaScript language features and and browser runtime features, as well as um, your backend and deployment mechanism. Um, But it's a great, uh, I think it's a great avenue for some some creative thinking.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm curious because, you know, when we're talking about this, I'm imagining the perfect evergreen app, but there's also feels like there's maybe even a tension that arises because you know, one of the core principles of good UI is you don't yank the rug out from underneath the user, right? They need to, at some point, you know, and we've all been there when the application does something of its own agency, that feels bad. It feels like, nope, this is my workspace. I need to be in control of it. You know, the only way that something should move from you know one place to the other without, you know, me uh, being involved is if it's part of some repeatable process that I kicked off. But obviously, things like you know upgrading the color of a button or you know fixing a layout bug, those are things that I'm just going to want to have happen automatically. I'm not going to worry about it. But there's a kind of uh, um, a gradation of features, and at what point do you say, you know, what upgrading needs to be something that the user explicitly requires versus this is something that we're just going to push? Uh, we're going to make that decision for them.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, one of the things that I'm, I'm curious what you all think. Is you know when you when you think about the mental model that our users have of working in a browser app, do you think that there is a mental model of oh like when I refresh I might get a new version, <laughs> right? Do people even think about that, or are they just like you know, that, you know your example about a button color changing as kind of a minor thing? I don't even I don't even know if I could endorse that like. You know, we've all been, I think, in situations where you know you do a minor redesign, and all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose, and users are in revolt, right? Uh, you know, take take the Slack icon change. <laughs> so, so I think it's
0: a it's a fascinating question. So, so I don't know what's the what is the answer. You you always ask for an upgrade? Just observing, you know, I don't have any data other than like observing people around me who use web applications who don't understand how they actually work under the covers. I don't think it's the expectation. That this code, this application is living and changing underneath their feet. Uh, I think the general perception is that the analogy to the desktop application where you've got the bundled binary and that's the one you're running is that's the perception.
3: You say the difference there is that, and with all these, I guess, new ways of deploying, we're shipping smaller things faster and multiple, multiple times a day or even an hour. So it's not the sort of thing you really want to be telling the users, oh, there's been an update, you need to upgrade as well. Um, and that's the difference between that, that desktop mentality. And if that's the mentality they have, it's, it's quite a, a bit of a, a shift, I guess.
2: It makes me think that one of the tools that users, so if you take like a general public, there's probably one tool that everybody can relate to, which is Facebook. So I think if there is there is a way to say like, what is what do people generally expect? Like, there's the business user, which I think we're often most familiar with, but I think general public, they're probably what they're most familiar with is is what happens on Facebook. And I don't use Facebook almost; I haven't used it for a couple of years, but. I wonder, like, what you know, how much of what people experience in Facebook actually impacts their expectations around how applications should behave.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I, I do. I think your your underlying point of you have to know your own users, uh, is, I think, is an important one. Also, obviously, some some folks are going to be more technical than others, or some some audiences will be more technical than others. But I would even, you know, go. I would even question. I, I think Charles, your suggestion that um, people think of it kind of as like a binary that it stays the same until you refresh. I think people have an idea that web apps improve over time or sometimes they get bugs, but hopefully that they improve and change over time and that there is a, there is a trade-off there. That you know, sometimes, that means sometimes there's something new to learn, but at the same time you get new features. But I don't know that people necessarily associate that with and, and it happens when I hit reload or it only happens when I open a new browser. Like I don't know that, that it's that clear for, for people in their head.
0: Right. I can see that. But the question is, is, you know, if it's too, if the evolution is too stark, I think people tend to get annoyed. If they're in the middle of a workflow or the middle of a use case and something changes, then it gives it a feeling of instability and non,
1: non-determinism, which I think can be unsettling. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, we all, you know, we all value as as engineers, we value getting into that flow state so much, right? Of like, oh man, we're I'm being productive. I don't have any distractions uh, and, you know, you kind of owe that to your users also to be able to let them and get into that state with your app um, and not be throwing up, you know, hey, there's new stuff. Reload. Like, uh, you know, I'm in the middle of something. Sorry.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. And I definitely do the same thing. You know, sometimes I'll let, you know, uh, iOS will be bugging me to upgrade for, you know, a month uh, until I finally start to feel guilty about security and actually do the upgrade. Right. Although once they started doing it at night, it actually made it a lot better. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting
1: interesting idea too. I think there's a natural tension between um, the lower integration risk that we have uh, as engineering teams of shipping um, very frequently, right? So, you know, Aaron sh- mentioned shipping a dozen times a day. You know, we we certainly have have been there and, and done that as well. I would say on average we ship a few times a day, but the reason that we do that is because we know the faster we get code into production, the faster we can trust it, right? So it, it passes all your tests, it passes your QA effort, but you don't really know, right? If you're being honest, you don't really know until there's thousands of people using it in production. And yet, this conversation makes me think about there is a tension between. Um, how frequently you do that versus, um, you know, your users kind of comfort level and expectations. Mm-hmm.
0: And maybe there's, you know, maybe there's a, a thing where you can kind of analyze on a per user basis how often they're active in the application and try to push updates when, you know, times that are customized to them.
1: Yep. I, I you know, this, is this user idle? Have they been idle for 30 minutes? Something like that. Mm hmm. Yep, or even like track trends over months
0: and see when they're most likely to be idle, mm-hmm. um, and schedule it for them. Oh, good point. Something like that.
2: I have an idea. Uh, we should introduce screensavers into web apps, and so when <laughs> <keeps> the user <laughs> stops using the app, just turn on the screensaver and do the upgrade.
1: I can see th- I can see the VC pitch. It's like it's after dark, but for the web.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Edgar install flying toaster.
3: <laughs> it does start to open up um, the idea as well of of that. You know automated checking that things are okay well after the fact because it's all right to sit there, maybe activate something and sit there on Sentry even for an hour and make sure there's no bug requests coming in, but if no one's actually received your app, then of course there's not going to be any come in, and it's very easy to kind of move on to the next thing and forget about that and I guess it's not something that I've ever put a lot of time in and I haven't worked anywhere that's had really great automated checking to see, is everything still okay? And I guess that's an interesting thing to to start thinking about as well, an important thing.
0: Like actually bundling in diagnostics in with your application to get really fine-grained information about kind of status and availability inside
3: the actual app? I'm not exactly sure, really, I guess. Um, I I maybe wasn't thinking about inside the app, but just, yeah, I I don't know what it looks like exactly, but um, there is that element, you know, shipping fast and getting stuff out there, but are we really making sure it all works? Later on, when everyone's actually using it.
1: Yeah, but this, this by the way, I just wanted to say, you know, we were talking earlier, what are the essential qualities uh, around deploying an app? And this reminds me that one thing that we didn't mention, but is very simple, is, you know, your app should have a version. <laughs> it should be unique, traceable back to, you know, what was the uh, the GitHub or Git commit that was the origin of that code. And it's a very simple idea, but if you're going to be analyzing um, errors in production when you have multiple, um, different versions of your JavaScript app running, um, you're going to need to know what version uh, caused this error, and then how do I trace it back and make sure that the code that I'm, that I'm trying to debug is actually the code that is, was running when this error happened.
0: Do you only use just the the Git SHA, or do you assign like a build number or something more using Semver, or what's a what's a good strategy?
1: In our case, we use Git tags, um, and so our CI deployment process, you know, for our Ember apps, basically looks like this is. Um, we work on a, a PR, we'll merge it to master. If it builds green on master, it gets deployed into our QA environment, environment automatically um, using Ember. CLI so deploy from our CI server, um, and then uh, once we're happy with how things are on QA, we do Git tag. Um, or actually, I use an Ember add-on called Ember release that does that tagging for me. And I'll tag it either minor... Uh, in a patch minor or major, well, roughly per Semver, although it doesn't matter that much in the case of apps. When there is a new tag that builds green on CI, that gets deployed automatically into production by Ember so deploy. And so that's a kind of a basic flow. And so the, uh, that that tag and just to be clear, the Semver tag is right. It's just going to be number dot number dot number you can get more sophisticated than that, than that. And I think both Aaron and Mattia have a system where even in the PR stage, there's automatic automatic deployments happening. So maybe one of you want to mention that.
3: Um, yeah, we're slightly different. So we every time we push to a pull request, that gets deployed to production. We're able to preview our pull requests in production um, before we even merge them to master, which we find super useful to send out links to stakeholders and maybe people that have raised bugs just to get them to verify things are fixed. And then at the point that it's all good, we'll merge the pull request to master, which will automatically do another deploy, which is the thing we'll ultimately activate. We we activate it manually after the fact. We just do a little bit of sanity checking, but we could we could automatically activate that on merge to master as well. But yeah, the 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 preview the being able to preview a pull request in production is super powerful for us.
0: That is uh, definitely a nice capability. It's hard. It's one of those. There's certain workflows or patterns or tools that you remember life before them and then after them, and it's very hard to go back to life before. And I would definitely say, you know, kind of the the whole concept of preview applications is is one of those.
3: Absolutely, it's it's a, it's a daunting concept if you're not there, you know, previewing something that's essentially a work in progress and production. But and there are there are some things you want to be careful with, obviously. But for the most part, um, it's a super valuable thing. That as you say, it's a world where once you're there, it's very hard to, to step back and and not be there again. Mm-hmm.
0: So I had a, a a question about you know we talked about I think it was 162 plugins for you know a, around the um, ember CLI deploy community. What for y'all has been the most surprising and delightful plugin to arrive that
2: you never imagined? That is a good one. I'm pulling up. Uh, I'm pulling up the list. What I can tell you for me, the it's not about a specific plugin. the The surprising part was. Uh, the sheer amount of different strategies that people use to for the shipping part, right? I, we found at least I found that the build part is uh, is similar for most people. Like most people want to do the things that you're supposed to do. So you want to build your application and then you want to minify it in some way. And there's a bunch of options there, like from Gzip to to Bzip to more more recent technologies. But the way people deliver it to servers and the, uh, and the difference in the solutions, th- that I think uh, to me has been the, the biggest thing. Like we have people that ship to S3, people that ship to Azure, people that ship directly to, to Fastly. We have people that SCP files, people that use old FTP, people that use our sync, people that do it over SSH. Uh, we have people that uh, ship stuff directly to a database because uh, some databases actually have great support for large files. So we even use like, uh, Part of Azure as a storage, right? And uh, we have people that do it in MySQL, people that do it in Postgres. Uh, uh, like it's They're actually storing the build artifacts inside of a database. Yes, oh. I've seen. I've seen that. Yes, it's kind of like uh, interesting, right? Like the the solutions that people ended uh, ended up ended up using, right? And so for, for for me, I think that that's been the the most uh, the most fascinating part, right? Like the because as we were saying at the beginning, like that is the I'm just seeing now we even have one for Zookeeper. I have no idea what this does, but uh, it's probably related to like some sort of orchestration around the seven day index right that that to me, I think has been a, has been the biggest surprise, right? like everybody end up ends up working in a different uh, environment, right? and so that flexibility that users need has been by far the most surprising one.
3: I think that's also been one of the challenging things. one of the enlight like I guess the enlightening things for me is. I think in the Ember ecosystem add-ons and even just Ember itself, it's all about convention over configuration and doing a lot of the stuff that you do for you. I think people expect Ember CLI Deploy to do the same thing, but the key thing here is it just really automates all the things you would do manually. And you need to understand exactly what you want your deployment strategy to be before you use Ember CLI It's not going to do it for you. You need to decide, do I want to store my assets on a CDN? Do I want to store my index in Redis or in console or in an S3 bucket? And you need to know all these things and have decided all these things and then embassy live deploy will make that really easy for you and this is one of the education things i think we still haven't even nailed because there are always people that want to know why it just doesn't work but deployment's a complex thing and as as what you're saying there are so many different variables and variations on on doing this that there's no sensible configuration convention over configuration embassy live deploy could uh, really provide out of the box i guess and so that's why we ended up with a, a pipeline that gives you the tools to, to be flexible enough to support your strategy.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the closest that we come to the convention is that, you know, for any app that's using Ember CLI Deploy, you can run Ember Deployment Targets, so Ember Deploy Prod and Ember Deploy QA, and you can expect that that's going to work. What you don't know is how is it, you know, how has it happened to be configured in this project? Charles, your question about uh, kind of the most surprising thing um, that's come out of the ecosystem. For me, I would say you know, Mattia mentioned um, plugin packs earlier, which are you know groups of plugins that are, are designed kind of work together well. And so we've seen some uh, plugins packs like you might expect, like an AWS pack. Um, for deploying uh, to AWS. Uh, But the more interesting ones to me are um, that we've seen a lot of companies open source their plugin packs. So what you naturally fall into as a company that's adopting Ember Sled Deploy that has multiple Ember apps is that you are going to develop your own plugin pack for internal use uh because generally speaking companies follow the same deployment pattern for each of their apps. There's usually not any reason to vary that. So then the the new thing that happened on top of that is people said, oh well why don't I make this open source so other people can kind of see how we do it. And that's been a really delightful part of the process um to kind of get a peek into uh how other organiz you know other organizations are orchestrating their deployments. Um, If people are curious about kind of looking at that themselves, um you can uh you know go on npm and look for uh, keyword Ember CLI deploy, plug and pack with hyphens. Um, and it'll pull up uh, all, of, all of those and you can kind of poke around and see what different companies have open sourced there.
0: Uh, I actually love uh, all three of those answers because it, it really is for me when you have a constellation of people around a particular problem, it's the surprising solutions that emerge that are some of the most exciting because that, that would have lain hidden otherwise, right? It would have been kind of buried beneath the source of, you know, company A or company B or company C, but actually having it out all out in the open so that you can inspect it uh, and say, wow, where has this solution been all my life? Uh, <laughs> you
1: know, something that you would have never imagined yourself. It's so funny that you mentioned that because that actually is the origin story way back. I'm talking like 2000. 2000- Thirteen probably of when we were we were very early Ember adopters, um, and we were trying to figure out how do we deploy this thing. We were deploying it with our Rails app, like literally, you know, deploying the same the Ruby code and the JavaScript code together, which took forever. It was a, a disaster. And I heard through the grapevine just exactly what you're saying, Charles, where this like the good ideas are kind of hidden inside of a company. Um, I heard through the great then that square the great find that Square had this approach that they were using where um, they would deploy their JavaScript assets and then deploy their their index HTML file, the contents of that file into a database, Redis in their case, um, and then serve it out of there and uh, it 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 empowered all of these interesting situations of like having multiple versions, being able to preview the release, et cetera. And so we then set out to copy that idea. Um, because there was nothing open source, so we had to create it ourselves, which we did in Ruby, um, which would made it inaccessible to many JavaScript shops in the first place. Then that the evolution of that kind of over time and, and of, um, Mattia and Aaron and. Uh, and Mike and um, the rest of the community kind of talking together has now moved this into the open source sphere so where these ideas are more accessible um, and have created an ecosystem encouraging these ideas to stay out in the open. It's so true that some there's some just gems of ideas that have been created by really brilliant engineers inside of companies that uh, could be benefiting so many people, they just haven't seen the light of day yet. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and so that kind of leads me to my next question Is is, you know, a lot of these, I would say most of the ideas that we've been talking about today, really, except for the build part, you know, how Ember specific are they? Obviously, the Ember CLI is a great resource and has a lot of great opinions for actually building um, the JavaScript assets themselves. But the, the second two phases of the pipeline really can vary freely, uh, if I understand correctly. And so have you all ever thought about trying to maybe kind of abstract these processes and these plugins so that, you know, these same ideas don't remain, you know, not just inside of a company, but inside a community that spans a set of companies uh, so that it's available for a wider audience? You know, how integrated is it with Ember and, and what kind of effort would that be?
1: That's a great question, um, Aaron or Mattia. One of you guys want to talk a little bit about the
2: history here? Yeah, sure. We've been thinking about this as well. And uh, in the past, uh, like a guy on, a, on, a, on the Ember CLI deploy team, Pepin, uh, has actually started this effort. And um, he kind of prototyped this, uh, this very idea of like uh, separating uh, the Ember CLI deploy part from Ember CLI itself and, and make it a bit more generic. And he started a project called uh, Deploy.js, which um, I can give you a link for the show notes later. Uh, I don't think that the project is currently maintained, but there's definitely like the start of the effort is there. And uh, the funny thing is that it was surprisingly easy. I think that uh, we didn't get there mostly because uh, we just all use Ember at work. And so we didn't have, uh, as you know, like open source is mostly motivated by... Well, like the needs, right, that uh, that an individual or a group of people have, right. But um, if uh, if uh, any of the listeners were were interested in this, like I think we, we should definitely get in touch, and we will be happy, I think, to talk to them and see and see what can be done here.
3: And also, if you look, um, <clears throat> there's actually a plugin called Ember CLI Deploy Create React App, and there's also Ember CLI Build View. So it can and is being used to deploy non-Ember apps, which I think is super interesting because the only real Ember. Part of it is just the, using the CLI to, I guess, discover the add-ons and plugins, and from then on, it's uh, it's really out of the hands of Ember. But it sort of leads into, I guess, a little bit. Um, Luke, Luke, and, and I mentioned this this concept of immutable web apps, and. I've been thinking a lot about this lately because we've sort of a deployment strategy that embassy light deploy sort of uses as an example a lot. And it's kind of become, I guess, tied to embassy light deploy in a way is the lightning approach, which is this whole idea of splitting your, putting your assets and a CDN and and your index HTML separately, maybe in Redis and, and serving that. And I was, I've been trying to work at how I can, Talk about this to the wider JavaScript community in a non-Ember way, and knowing full well that the concept of lightning deployment means nothing to anyone outside of Ember. And just by chance, I, I was just uh, talking to to some people, and and this terminology of immutable deployments kind of rose, and I started searching around that, and I come across a website called ImmutableWebApps.org, which it was just scarily the same as what we've been talking about for the last three or four years with embassy light deploy um, and a, a way to boil down at a framework agnostic level. What are the key points that you, you need to consider when building a JavaScript web app to to make it immutable and it was just really amazing seeing it was this this website was put up three three weeks before i did my google search coincidentally and um it was basically word for word what we have been talking about for the last three or four years so someone else in and on the other side of the world has been coming up with the same ideas in their company, like you were talking about earlier. And we've reached out to him. And I guess that, to me, is sort of the way forward that I, I want to sort of pursue to try and get these ideas out in a framework agnostic way to the rest of the community to say, hey, have you thought about deployment in this way? Have you thought about building your app in this way to, to give you these sorts of capabilities?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I think uh, the, the the wider community could definitely benefit from that because, you know, most of the blog posts and talks that I've seen, you know, that concern themselves with deployment of single page applications, are, you know, they're, it's still much more in the tu- tutorial phase of like this is how I reach, <laughs> uh, you know, this is how I achieve getting it getting this uh, deployment strategy. Not this is how I repeatedly encode it as a program and leverage it that way, um, and so definitely getting that message out. Uh, to a wider audience. I think it's a, what's the, what's the word? It's an underserved market.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I really like this idea also. And, you know, I think about this immutable web If you look at it, it's it's sort of a manifesto of like, or a, a conceptual description of, you know, what are the qualities that your app has to have to qualify as an immutable web app, which I think is a, a funny, kind of a funny idea, but one that we can, Uh, That people can start to get their heads around and compare this, you know, that description to their own apps and say, you know, where do I, how do I hit this or fall short? And it reminds me a lot of the kind of the idea of this like 12 factor app, which is an idea that I think came out of Heroku originally. And it's an idea of a back end app that, that is portable, um, across, you know, to be able to easily move across different hosts and easily be scalable to different instances of, um, you know, different cloud instances and stuff. And it was these 12 factors that if your app um you know obeys all of these things, then it's going to do well under those you know circumstances and and be able to satisfy those needs so I think it's a great it's a great way of thinking and probably maybe even like a better entree into the conversation with the wider community than a library is certainly a library called still i deploy. <laughs>
0: Yeah, this is a fantastic discussion. Um it's definitely reminded me of some of the, the the best practices that I haven't thought about in a long time and and definitely opened my eyes uh to some new ones and some new developments and you know so often we can be focused on how our apps work internally like how the javascript code works uh that we can just you know kind of uh what's the saying lose lose sight of the forest uh through the trees or I can't remember. It's like too busy looking down uh, the end of your nose to see past your face. I, I've probably mangled both of those adages, uh, but maybe, maybe 60% of two mangled adages is at least equal to one. This is something, you know, that we need to be thinking about more, that everybody needs to be thinking about more. This is actually a very exciting, very useful problem space, and I am just really grateful that you guys came on uh, to talk to us uh, about it. So thank you, Mattia. Thank you, Luke. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you so much.
2: It was a great time. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much.
0: Well, thank you for listening. If you or someone you know has something to say about building user interfaces that simply must be heard, please get in touch with us. We can be found on Twitter at at the Frontside or over just plain old email at contact at Frontside.io. Thanks and see you next time.